Hello, welcome to the podcast at Jesperville Baptist Church. This morning's message is entitled, The Silent Servant. As we continue to march our way through Isaiah 53, and uh, I've enjoyed this so far. Next week will be Easter. It'll be our final message in this series, and uh, please enjoy. All right, if you have your place in Isaiah 53, if you'll please stand, respect and reverence for the Word of God. We're going to read our three verses today. We're going to start in verse number 7 and read verse 7, 8, and 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. The title of the message this morning is The Silent Servant. The Silent Servant. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray once again that you be with us this morning as we stroll through this chapter, Lord, as we walk through this chapter verse by verse, line by line, word by word, and we just pick out the truths and the treasures and the things buried deep inside, Lord. May the truths and the doctrine that we extract from this chapter and these verses today, may they bring us closer to you, give us a better understanding of who Jesus is. Be with us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that Isaiah 53 is written about Jesus Christ? I mean, this chapter is written 700 years before Jesus walked the earth. How do you know? The Jews, uh, the Jews believed that the servant, so this, the servant of Jehovah, <coughs> they believe this servant of Jehovah is Israel or even Isaiah himself. They even thought this before Christ. And I'll tell you why they thought that here in a minute. Well, that's the question we got to ask. <coughs> Excuse me. How do we know that this is about Jesus Christ? Well, I want to tell you, there was somebody else that had that same question. In fact, this other person who had this question is in the Bible, okay? They had the same question about this chapter. Who is this chapter talking about? And the question is answered in the Bible. And that person was the Ethiopian eunuch. So we all know the story. Philip's going through the desert and he hitchhikes through 
the desert with this Ethiopian eunuch. And this, this eunuch, this Ethiopian official, is reading the scripture. And Philip comes up and says, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how can I know unless somebody tell me? And then he turns to Philip and he reads a very familiar passage to Philip. And this is what he reads in Acts 8, 32 and 33. So this is the Ethiopian eunuch reading the scripture that he's on to Philip. And it says, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? Or his life is removed from the earth. Well, what do you know? The Ethiopian eunuch was reading our passage for this morning. He's reading our text that we have come to preach on today. He's reading Isaiah 53, verse 7 and verse number 8. Now, sometimes when the Ethiopian eunuch is portrayed in children's books, you see him, he's got a book in one hand, and he's got the reins in the other, and he's going through the desert. But that's really not a correct depiction of the Ethiopian eunuch. I want you to understand that this guy worked for royalty. He was rich. He wasn't just going through the desert. He was going through the desert in style. I mean, this guy was more than likely sitting in the shade of a cart. He was in the shade. He had a chauffeur. He was reading a scripture scroll, so obviously he had money, because back then those things weren't cheap. So this was a rich guy. He worked for royalty. He had a chauffeur. He was in the shade. And like I said, that scroll he had was expensive, okay? That wasn't a Bible uh, a Gideon Bible he stole out of a Motel 6. No, no. This scripture scroll that he had was very expensive. And so this Ethiopian eunuch, he reads Isaiah 53, 7 and 8 to Philip. And then he says, Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or somebody else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. It's about Jesus. And Philip, from that scripture, started preaching Jesus to him. Let me tell you something. Isaiah 53 was all the gospel that Philip needed to lead this man to Christ. It was all the gospel that he needed was Isaiah 53. I want to tell you something, Isaiah 53, I want to remind us about some facts about this chapter. This chapter is a song. This chapter is a five stanza song. It is a five verse song. There are actually four servant songs in Isaiah. Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then Isaiah 53, which actually this song starts at chapter 52 and verse 13 and goes through chapter 53 and verse 12. In the original Hebrew, this song, this servant song of Isaiah 53, it has a rhythm. It has a rhyme. 
There is a, there's a, there's a, a flow to it. It flows like a song. It flows like a poem. And in the original Hebrew language, it has a rhythm and it has a rhyme like a poem or a song. And this particular stanza that we're on this morning, verses 7 through 9, it has a star. It has a focus. There's something about the Messiah. There's something about the servant of Jehovah, which literally translated it means slave of Jehovah. But a lot of translations today don't like that word slave, so they use servant. But literally translated it slave of Jehovah. So there's an aspect about the slave of Jehovah, the servant of Jehovah, that stands out in this stanza. You know what it is? It's his mouth. His mouth stands out in this stanza. In fact, two times in the first verse, in verse 7, we're told that his mouth, he did not open his mouth. And then you go to verse 9 and it says there was no deceit in his mouth. His mouth is very important here. Let me show you how important. In the first three servant songs in Isaiah, the servant speaks. In this servant song, he does not speak. He does not say one word. And that is why today we, are, we could call him the slaughtered servant, but today we're going to call him the silent servant. It is fitting that this message comes before Easter Sunday, comes before Resurrection Sunday, because in verse 7, 8, and 9, we're going to walk through his trial, we're going to walk through his death, and we're going to walk through the burial of Jesus Christ. Number one, my first point this morning is verse number 7, and we're going to call this an unjust trial. An unjust trial. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. What do these words mean? Well, the word oppressed, it means to drive, to tax, to harass, to tyrannize. It can mean a raiser of taxes. It can mean a task master. Afflicted. Afflicted, it means dealt with hard, it means forced, it means hurt, it means weakened, it means distressed. And also, let me tell you something else about that word afflicted in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, that word afflicted is in the passive tense. What that means is Jesus allowed himself, the servant allowed himself to be afflicted. And that's what that means. So he was an oppressed, so he had an oppressor. And, and he, he, this oppressor caused him this affliction, this hurt and distress. And you know what this is about? This is about Jesus' trial. Let me tell you something. If Jesus would have just endured his trial, it would have still been unbearable for me and you. It would have still been unbearable if he would have just faced his trial. I want you to understand the beatings, the fist to the face, the sticks to the face, the crown of thorns, the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, they all took place during the trial. The scourging, it all took place during the trial. 
Isaiah 52, 14 says, He was marred more than any other man. He looked like a piece of meat. Just a piece of meat dangling out there. And, and, and don't forget about the physical trauma, but I understand, you know, there is, there is still, there is verbal abuse, there is mental abuse, and he not only had to endure the physical trauma, but he had to endure all the false accusations, he had to endure the lies, he had to endure the false witnesses. He endured all of that with silence. But so-and-so steals our potato salad recipe and passes it off on her own, and we blast them on Facebook. That's what we do. Man, we're persecuted, aren't we? But Jesus, Jesus was silent through all of that. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Now look, one of my favorite guys to study in the Bible is Pilate. Pilate is very compelling. It's very interesting study to study Pilate. Say what you will about Pilate. Say what you will. Pilate was a wicked man. Pilate was a coward. But let me tell you something Pilate was not. Pilate was not dumb. He was not dumb. Okay, he saw what the Jews were doing. He saw this charade that they were putting on, this game that they were playing. He knew exactly from the very beginning they were not fooling Pilate. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to fool Pilate, and he was not fooled for one second. Did you know that Pilate declared Jesus innocent three times? Did you know that Pilate tried to release Jesus and let him go three times? But the Jews would have none of it. And through all of it, through Jesus' oppression, through Jesus' affliction, he never complained. He never complained, not once. I was did something I shouldn't have done. A couple years ago, I picked up my nephew on a, you know what I'm talking about. I picked up my nephew on a fireman carry. Now, my nephew was 26 years old, grown man, and I'm, you know, I pulled a muscle in my back, and I complained about that pulled muscle for three months. Every single day, I complained about that pulled muscle in my back because it hurts. It hurts. I haven't picked him up since. Jesus never complained. Jesus, you know another thing Jesus never did is he never defended himself in his trial. You know that? He never defended himself. I'm not saying that he never spoke, but he never defended himself. In fact, if you go back and you read during Jesus' trial all the times that he did speak, the only time he spoke was to glorify God. Everything he said was glorifying to God. So when it came to glorifying God, he spoke. But when it came to his own defense, he was silent and he said absolutely nothing in his own defense. He never said one thing in his own defense. You see, the case against Jesus was so made up and the case against Jesus was so shaky that all he would have had to do was make a couple of statements of testimony 
and he would have been freed. All he had to do was speak on his own behalf, and he probably would have been let go. But he never said one word in his own defense. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. You know, a young, let's talk about lambs and sheep for a second. A young lamb that comes in to be sheared, but it's a very young lamb, it may struggle at first. But, you know, people have said it's quite amazing to watch when you take that lamb and you flip it upside down to get ready to shear it, it's immediately docile, immediately. And in fact, older sheep do not struggle at all. They just let it happen. You know what else is something about, something else about sheep? Sheep sound the same going to the watering hole as they do going to the slaughtering pen because they do not know the difference. They do not know the difference. They just go. They never complain. Isaiah, uh, uh, 1 Peter 2, 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Another thing I want you to realize is that please understand, please know, please realize that Jesus was not a helpless victim. Jesus was not a helpless victim. In fact, he was in control the whole time. It's not unlike, I'm, I'm in charge of my house, and the wife says, sure you are. Sure you're in control. But Jesus, Jesus was in control the entire time. John 10, 18, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my father. John 19, 11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. John 19, 30, and he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his ghost. Jesus was not a helpless victim. Jesus was in charge the entire time that was happening by the sovereign hand of God, and he had control the entire time. You know, Spurgeon said something about Jesus' death that, that really stuck out to me. This is what Spurgeon said. He said, if I died for you, it wouldn't be any, it wouldn't make any difference. You know why? Because I'm going to die anyway. Ultimately, I'm going to die anyway. And so me dying for you is just me dying a little early. It wouldn't matter because I'm going to die any, anyway. When it comes to Jesus, his death was so special because Jesus never had to die. See, Jesus never had to experience death, but he left heaven and he came to earth to die for us. And that makes his death that much more special because he never had to experience it. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Once again, he did not open his mouth. 
He did not open his mouth against his enemies. And how many times could you see someone uh, uh, being led to an execution chamber and they hurl curses and they hurl filth and, and, and degrade their captors and degrade those who are oppressing them. And yet Jesus didn't do that. Jesus never said anything in his own defense, and Jesus never blamed God. He never said one cross word to God. And how many of us humans would be in a hard situation and have a hard thing come in our life, and we try to blame God? Jesus never did that. Matthew 26, 26, 63, Jesus held his peace. Matthew 27, 12, he answered nothing. Matthew 27, 14, he answered him not a word. Have you ever heard the phrase, silence speaks volumes? You know what Jesus's silence means? means it was voluntary. It means he was willing. When I say, hey, we're going to Sonic and I don't hear anything, that's a yes. Okay, we're going. Jesus's silence meant that he was voluntarily doing this. He was a willing participant in this affair. He did not say one word. He went along with the flow because this is what he was here to do. Isaiah 5, 2, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Think of all the things he gave up for me and you. Now, here's another thought I want you to think about. There's very few people on this planet that would give their lives, give their life for you. There's even fewer people that would give up heaven for you. And that's what Jesus did. Think about that. That's what Jesus did. He gave up heaven to come down here and die for us, which brings us to our next point. First, we have an unjust trial. And then in verse number eight, we have an unjust death. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is a throwback to that trial. These are all legal terms. Oppression. Your Bible may even say the word prison. I know in the King James it says prison. But the oppression, it, 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 it goes back to his confinement. It goes back to his arrest. It goes back to him being under lock and key. Being under guard. And of course the judgment, it stands for the legal proceedings, the judicial proceedings. And then taken away is the final verdict and when the and 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 when the judge when he casts his verdict the prisoner is taken away all of these are legal terms and this all goes back to his trial but now it's time for his death it's time for the sentence to be carried out 
He is the slave of Yahweh, and Pilate decides that he is to be executed like a slave. Jesus dies in a slavish fashion. Now, let's talk about one. I want you to look at, at, at this verse 8. I want you to read these few words here. It says, And as for his generation who considered, that's what my new American says. And, and as for his generation who considered, let's talk about that little phrase right there in that verse. Okay? Now, that word generation in the Hebrew. It, it does mean generation like the generation we live in, our contemporaries, but it can also mean descendants. So there are some people, the, the Hebrew word is the word door, just like door, that's a door, door. It's the Hebrew word door. And it can mean generation, but it can also mean descendants. So there are some people that think that this means, this is a prophecy that the Messiah will not have any children. Okay, some people believe. In fact, in the New Living Translation, the NLT, it even says descendants. He will have no descendants. But things get a little clearer because remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He repeats this verse in the New Testament and he's actually reading from the Septuagint, which is the Greek, uh, the Greek Old Testament. And the word in the Greek is, is a little more clear. It's the word genea. It obviously, is where we get the word generation from, okay? And can, there's another word for descendants, and he didn't say that. He said genea. So I believe this is talking about the generation that Jesus is living in and not his descendants, okay? That's what I, so I really think that this talks about. And actually, I've read this verse in every single English translation. I've read every one of them. And I believe the best way this is translated is in the NIV. It says in the NIV, it says, but he answered. Wait a minute. I got ahead of myself. I'll get to the NIV here in a minute. Forget you said. I'm going to take that back. Okay. Let me, let me get ahead of myself. So I believe it is talking about the generations as in the generation that he lived in. Now, when it comes to generations, a generation can be about 30 years. We've got our current generations right now. We got the baby boomers. OK, and then you have those born in and around the 70s. They're called Generation X. OK, and then the next generation um, the millennials. Now, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. I dog on the millennials all the time. Those stinking millennials, they're destroying our country, you know, um, which every generation gets worse. I'm just saying. How sad was I to find out that I just get in there? I mean, the millennials start in 82 and I'm just right there. I was like, oh, I'm a millennial. Oh, I just get in there, man. I, I mean, why couldn't I have been born in 81? Okay. But I just, so I'm like, consider me an elder millennial. Okay. Um, but I just under the radar in there. And then, um, then you got generation Z. So the next generation coming up is generation Z. And when I tell you that each generation gets worse and worse and worse, that is a hundred percent truth. Okay. 
We are raising a very, very wicked generation, and each generation is more wicked than the next. Okay? The generation that Jesus lived in was a very, very wicked generation that he lived in. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 12, 39, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation uh, craves a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of the Jonah the prophet. So the generation, even Jesus said, his generation that he lived with was a very wicked and adulterous evil generation. Now, like I said, I read Isaiah 53, 8 in every English translation, and I think it's best translated in the NIV. In the NIV, it says, yet who of his generation protested? Yet who of his generation protested? And I think that's the best translation for this verse, because who did protested? Who cared that Jesus died? Where were his disciples at? I mean, I know he had 12 apostles. They doubled his disciples, but he had more than 12 disciples. Where were his disciples at? At the cross, the only one there was John. Where were the rest of them? Well, they were out fulfilling Zechariah 13, 7, which says, strike the shepherd, then the sheep may be scattered. So the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. So that's where they were. Where were they at? John was the only one to be found. Who in, the, who, who in that generation cared? I mean, think of all the things that Jesus did. He, man, uh, I mean, think about Jesus bringing your son or your daughter back from the dead, and then you don't even show up to defend him. Think about him healing your sickness, healing your leprosy, casting a demon out of you, and then you don't even show up in his defense. Of course, another reason that nobody showed up is probably a big part of it is they didn't have time. Did you know? Did you know that there's a Jewish tradition that was strictly adhered to that once a verdict was passed, there's a 40-day waiting period. A 40-day waiting period from the time that the verdict is passed until the sentence gets carried out. And in that 40 days, anybody can step up with new evidence. Anybody can step up and speak in defense of the prisoner. It's a 40-day waiting period. It was always strictly adhered to. Until Jesus. They started his trial in the dead of night under and just so just to just rush it through and push it through and did not give him 40 days. But did you know that the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, which is written after, written after Jesus, did you know it says in the Talmud? that they convicted Jesus and that they did give him 40 days before they killed him? They straight up put a lie in the Jewish Talmud. They put a lie right in there. They did not give him 40 days. Let me tell you something. The Jews absolutely hate Jesus. They hated him then and they hate him now. The next phrase. 
He was cut off. He was cut off out of the land of the living. Of course, we know that Messiah will be cut off. Daniel 9.26 tells us that Messiah will be cut off. And this phrase in Isaiah 53 is actually the first indication that he's going to die. Okay, up until now, he could have just been uh, it could have just been a very, very severe beating. But many Jews did not want to accept that this servant was the Messiah. Even before Jesus, they did not see the Messiah dying. So they said, oh, the suffering servant is Israel or the suffering servant is Isaiah. But this statement I want you to know this this morning that this statement, he was cut off from the land of the living. This is a legal death sentence. It's like saying you will die from lethal injection. Electricity will pass through your body until you were dead. You will hang by the neck until you stop moving. It is a legal death sentence. We get it from Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20 talks about people who worship false gods and it says they will be cut off from among his people. It also means that it will be a violent death. It means that it will be a premature death. You know, one of the reasons why Israel can't be the suffering servant, I'll tell you why. Israel's never been cut off from the land of the living. Israel has never been cut off from the land of the living. Israel has always endured. It will always endure. It will always be a nation. It will always be here. It was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression, transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I want you to know this morning, that stroke that he got, that stroke was for me and you. But he took the stroke. Isaiah includes himself in this. He says, it's my people. Isaiah puts him so he can't be the servant either because he includes himself in the people. He says, my people. So yes, this is talking about Israel and their transgressions, but in the new covenant, are we not grafted in? Is it not our transgressions as well? We are grafted in. And the prophet brings up this point again and again and again. The servant of the Lord, the Messiah, dies not for himself, but for the transgressions of my people. Even Caiaphas, the high priest, you know what he said before Jesus died? Caiaphas was a very, very wicked, wicked man, but he was the high priest and he made a statement and he said, would it not be better that one man die for the nation than the whole nation perish? Now, when he said this, he was speaking it against Jesus, but because he was the high, he was the high priest that year, God was prophetically speaking through him because that's exactly what happened. So what have we had so far this morning? We've had an unjust trial. We've had an unjust death. 
But now, going off the path a little bit, we have a just burial. A just burial. Why isn't it unjust too? Well, I'll tell you in just a second. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. You know, from Luke 23, we know that Jesus died between two thieves. He died between two criminals. He was to be put to death with criminals. He was to be disposed of like a criminal. And let me tell you something this morning. Criminals did not get a proper burial. They did not. When a criminal died on the cross, it was usually left up on the cross. Dead. Hanging. Rotting. The birds would come and eat the eyes. The animals would crawl up the wood and feast on the rotten flesh. A, a bloody, putrefying sign to all that would be an enemy to Rome, a beacon of deterrent against anyone who would stand against the Roman Empire. Roadkill is what Jesus was supposed to be. He was supposed to be roadkill. Eventually, the corpses, once they, once they got the message across, don't cross Rome, eventually the corpses would be taken down and they would be taken to the city dump. City dump was in the valley of Hinnon. And it was the dump, it was the sewer, and it was the place where the criminals end up. In this valley of Hinnon, fires would burn in the valley, and they would burn forever. The fires would never ever go out between all the trash and refuse and all the methane and all the different chemicals the fires would never go out in this valley this is the same valley where the followers of Baal worship this is the same valley where they would burn babies to the god Molech where they would build the fire inside the belly of Molech and let the arms get red hot and put the babies in and let the babies burn to death this is the same valley where Ahaz sacrificed his sons. This is the same va valley in Isaiah where Isaiah says the worm dieth not. And then Jesus says it again three times. The, the worm dieth not. And then he called, Jesus calls the valley of Hinnon a picture of hell. Jesus' body was bound for the dump. It was bound for the sewer. It was roadkill. But God said, I will not let that happen. Psalm 16.10, Neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. There was a rich man named Joseph, yet he was with a rich man in his death. There was a rich man named Joseph. He was from a place called Arimathea. He was a secret disciple of Christ. And he was very, very rich. Matthew 27, 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. 
This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn out of which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Jesus should have been roadkill. Jesus was bound for the dump. Jesus was bound for the sewer. That's where he should have went. He was to, to go where criminals go. But he didn't. Why? Because the rest of verse 8. Because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You see, Jesus was holy on the inside and holy on the outside. You see, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay? Hebrews talks about Jesus. It says He was holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. The dump, roadkill, the Father would not allow that. He would not allow that. And you know what this was? You know what his burial was? It was the first small step in his exaltation. The very first small step. You could even, you might could even hear God the Father say these words when he says, You have taken my son, you have beat him, you have spit on him, you have accused him, you have scourged him, you've tortured him, you've marred him more than any other man. You marched him through the street with a cross on his back. You hung him naked in humiliation. You have humiliated my son and it stops right here. No more. No more humiliation. I will not allow any further humiliation on my son. He met the requirements. The cross was as low as Jesus could go. And that's where his humiliation ends. God honors Jesus in his burial. Because there was no sin in Jesus before and out. I bet the Jews wanted that body. I bet the Jews wanted to rip that body down from the cross. And I bet they couldn't wait to throw that body over into that valley. But God said, no, 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 this is as far. Hey, all he had to do was die for you. And after that, Jesus is done. It's He's done going down. Now it's time for him to start going up. The burial was his first step. His first step up. In a few hours on the third day, he comes up out of the grave. And then when he ascends to heaven, he ascends all the way up. Jesus' humiliation was over. Let's talk about Paul for just a second here to close out. You know, Paul, Paul was an unbelieving Jew, wasn't he? I mean, Paul had such hatred for, for Jesus that he was an, he, he, he was, had such hatred for Jesus. He was so zealous that he, he persecuted Christians. He threw them in jail. He killed Christians. I mean, he was the guy. He would throw them in jail. He would execute them. And, and he, he was doing this, and in doing this, he ended up on Damascus Road. In fact, he was on Damascus Road to go persecute more Christians. That's what he was there for. But 
the Lord stopped him and the Lord blinded him and the Lord introduced himself and transformed him and through the sovereignty of God, Paul became a Christian and he turned in faith to Jesus Christ. He was a Jewish zealot, zealously anti-Jesus and Paul is a little snapshot of what's going to happen to the Jews in the future. He's a little snapshot of that. But after the Lord met Paul on Damascus Road, he was never ever the same after that. He was never the same after that. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, We have known Christ according to the flesh. He said, I knew Jesus as a man. I knew Him as a man. I hated Jesus. I was the typical anti-Jesus uh, Jew. I had that type of attitude. And he said, we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. He didn't see Jesus the way He had always seen Him before. From Damascus on, He had a different view of Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. Have you had your Damascus moment yet? Now, I'm not saying your Damascus moment is going to be just like Paul's, but there comes a point in every Christian's life when they meet Jesus on the road. And once they meet Jesus, they're never the same. They never look at Jesus the same way again. He was the silent, slaughtered servant. He substituted himself voluntarily for our salvation. And his silence said, I voluntarily do this for you. Just like Isaac. Isaac could have took his daddy. Abraham was an old man. Isaac was young, virile. But Isaac laid down for his father willingly. And that's what Jesus did for us. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know what you need this morning. Maybe there's someone under the sound of my voice. You don't know that you've been saved. You don't know that you don't know that you've ever been saved or you don't know that you're on your way to heaven. You have some doubts. But today's the day to get that taken care of. If you're in the service, you can, of course, come down to the altar or you can get my attention after the service. I'll talk to you. If you're online, if you're on Facebook and you don't know that you're saved, you can call me or message me or come up to the church and talk to me and we'll have a conversation about that. If you are a Christian and you are saved, I want you to understand that the next week leading up to next Sunday is a very important week in our Christian faith. It's the week that we think about our salvation and we think about the gospel story and we think about what Christ did for us. Today is the day we think about the day He rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and proclaiming, uh, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And uh, in the coming week, He's going to be have the Last Supper with the disciples and He will be betrayed by Judas and he will stand trial and he will die. 
The next Sunday on the third day, he will come out of the grave. Let's not forget. Let this not just be an average week that we don't think about Jesus and what he did for us. Because we need to consider that as Christians. We need to remember that. And if we live with that thought on our brain for the next week, we'll be amazed at how much more special next Sunday will be.